JCB Art Studio, Stephen, Stephen, Stephen. I'm, I'm halfway through my coffee, so bear with me. We're on Stephen 5, okay? <laughs> my name is Joanna. I'm the author of The Unraveling and Dealer's Child. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping my echo won't be that bad today. So I have to try to stay calm and cool and uh, not get too excited because I'm very excited. I have multi-published, award-winning author, Eileen Cook with me. Eileen's my mentor too, which is really, really super cool. Okay, professional. Eileen's novels have been published in nine languages. Her books have been optioned for film and TV. She spent most of her teen years, teen years wishing she was someone else or somewhere else, which is great training for a writer. She's an instructor, mentor with the Creative Academy and Simon Fraser University's Writers Studio Program, where she loves helping other writers find their unique story to tell. On her website, you'll see that Eileen is not only an author, but a public speaker and a mentor. And uh, Eileen, I was on your website and I feel really honored because, you know, you're, you've been keynote speaker at the Surrey International Conference in front of 400, and I was thinking about this this morning, 400 of your, I would say, writers, peers, you know, that captivated audience, and I get to have you one-on-one. -on -one. So thank you for coming on my podcast. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm, I like one-on-one. -on -one. It's a little bit easier. 400 people is a little bit intimidating. So <laughs> this is much more my speed. I was also curious, what was the book that inspired you to become a writer? You know, it's kind of interesting because it's, it's not a book that I think a lot of people expect. So I always was a big reader. I grew up loving reading books and my parents were big readers. Uh, so those two things are probably connected. Uh, and every week we would go to the library and we would, all of us would, you know, cultivate our hall for whatever the week was going to be, what we we're going to do. And I was about 11 or 12. Uh, I don't remember exactly, but it was right in that age zone. And we were at the library and I wandered out of the children's section into the adult section to look for my parents. And I picked up a book called Salem's Lot by Stephen King. So for people who don't know it, it's a vampire story. Uh, it's very much not Twilight. It's not uh, like sparkly vampires at all. They're very dark, scary vampires. So I added this to my stack of like Nancy Drew and choose your own adventure books and wandered downstairs. And the librarian was like, absolutely not. No, that book is nasty. It's a nasty, nasty book, which clearly she didn't know kids because it's I'm like my mild interest in reading it went from like, oh, that sounds interesting to like, well, now I have to read it. If it's nasty, then I really want to read it. So I had to go and get my parents' permission. And I remember my mom came and she looked at the book and she read it over and she said, well, you can read it if you want, but it's going to be really scary. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't someone who, I didn't like scary books. Like I wasn't a kid who was going after horror movies or any of that kind of stuff. And so I think she was quite surprised. And I just, yes, I desperately wanted to read this book. Um, so I took it home and I read it. And of course it scared the pants off of me because 
turns out Stephen King's pretty good at that, right? <laughs> and if you're 11 and reading that, it's even extra scary. Yeah. And I remember sort of feeling this sense of awe because I knew it was make-believe. Like I understood that concept even at 11 or 12. I understood the difference between real and make-believe. So I knew that it was make-believe. I didn't know how someone could make something up that made me feel such real emotions. And it just seemed to me like magic, like that you could do that, right? That you could, and and I still am astounded by that. You know, if you read a book uh, and it makes you cry or, you know, you find yourself laughing out loud or... I don't know if you've had the experience where you're like, you're angry with the character, like, oh, I can't believe you did that thing. And, um, and then I remember like, oh, they're just made up. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I just loved it. And that's the first time that I can remember having the thought, I want to know how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Thank you, Stephen King. Yeah. So I will blame him. <laughs> well, and do you also find that as a writer, when you're writing, when you pull something together, it feels like magic. Yes. To yourself too. And you're just like, yeah, I got something here. And you want to tell everyone? Yes. Read <laughs> <laughs> this part right here. It's really good. Yeah. I, I think there is still, and, and Stephen King, I, I still, uh, I'm not still a big horror reader. I don't read a lot of horror, but I will read quite a few of his books. And I loved his book on writing. Uh, where he talks about his writing process and he talks about writing as being a form of telepathy, you know, that he's imagining something and he's like teleporting that image into your head where you reconstruct it. So it's traveling through time. So, you know, he wrote it in, you know, 1980, whatever. And, you know, you could be reading it in 2024 and you're still right there in that moment. And it's a form of immortality, really. Like it's, um, I mean, boy, that's not a pretentious <laughs> impressive for a Thursday morning, I mean, it's reality. Um, but I, I do believe that there's just something so special about that particular form of communication. Okay. Okay. So let's start. Let's start with your writing, with your books. I've started reading Omia Murder, and it's been really cool because I've also been reading build better settings and it's been reading the two has been such an education okay so I'm, I'm reading the nonfiction build better settings for writers and then I'm seeing it in the finished form you know and that opening scene our poor heroine you know her flight's being delayed there's the physicality of angry passengers and you just keep cranking up the tension for a poor heroine you know and so the listeners know our heroine she sees her just ex-boyfriend who's with another girl who used to be her best friend and then you crank it up and like they're all waiting for the plane and then you crank it up a little bit more with this drooling toddler who bites our heroine's knee and oh my god that kid okay okay that I'm, I have to be careful because people think I don't like children and that's not the case okay <laughs> but they are a little feral I mean I think 
kids are, I mean, they're adorable. And yes. if they're yours, I know you, people absolutely love them, but they are, they are that unpredictable thing. And this kid bites her knee, you know, and I'm just like, where is the parent? Okay. So again, that emotion you're drumming up in me. And what I see is there's like this mix of her inner thought, her inner turmoil, and it's magnified by the physical of the situation. So that ties in to build better settings. Yes. It does. And I would love to say that I was thinking about it that clearly when I wrote, you owe me a murder. (laughs) So I will definitely think, I mean, writing build better settings was uh, something that came out of a discussion with another writer friend, a co-writer on that book. Uh, Her name is Crystal Hunt. And we were talking that neither of us really saw ourselves as setting people. So like when I think of setting people, I think of those people, particularly people who love to write fantasy um, or historical where it's like, each, you know, everything in the room is, you know, part of this lush backdrop. And I'm like, you know, it doesn't really, you know, where the book is set is less important to me. I'm just writing contemporary. And we started talking about, even in our own personal lives, how the space around us reflects who we are. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, so I was thinking of myself and, you know, the changes I went through after I went through a divorce and I had my first place, my, my, Place all to myself, which I haven't had in my entire adult life since university because I got married, right? So, and then the choices I made to decorate that um, or how people sort of fit into space. And I started realizing, you know, I think it was always there. And when I look at You Owe Me a Murder, it opens in an airport. And one of the things that I love about airports and hate about airports as one who seems to get stuck in them all the time is it's such an in-between place, right? You're you're not, you haven't arrived, you're not gone, you're just in this sort of waiting zone to get where you're going or to get, you know, all of those things. And, and that's really where the character is. Yeah. So, you know, what she had planned, uh, you know, for this school trip that she's headed on is now upended because her boyfriend is now seeing someone else. So, so much for that romantic vacation. Yeah. Um, and she's, she's stuck in between and it's a little, I mean, I think airports are a version of hell, but you add a <laughs> sugared toddler to the mix and it was definitely <laughs> of hell. And that's where she is. And I, I think how she feels about that. Whereas I think I could have written the same scene in the same airport if she had been very excited to go. Mm-hmm. And had been, you know, like she couldn't wait to get on that plane. And this was going to be the best trip of her life. Just how I would have described that airport differently around that sense of possibilities and, oh, everybody's going places. Um, so I think I'm very interested in that intersection between the space around us and how we feel about it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now we're going to get more into this book. I just want to ask a few questions of you as a writer before we get more into this book. In that first scene, you learn of Kim's goal. And she says she doesn't want to kill Miriam. This is her best friend, who's now her ex-boyfriend's girlfriend, right? She wants to be Miriam. And, you know, she, I say she and I, because I am in that airport with her that's how like this scene is you know uh, try not to get sidetracked here but like 
in the writing studio, you've been instructing us how you're, you know, you're putting your characters in that scene, right? And you're in that scene. And I'm losing, I've just lost my train of thought here. But okay. Because you're stick, in the airport. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. But okay, here it was. It was about action and activity. And even though they're sitting in an airport waiting, there's still action activity going around, like going on around them, you know? So you don't, like for for, ju- for just sitting, there's still action, right? <laughs> that And that is what I thought was cool. And I'm cheering, I'm cheering for Kim and she doesn't come across as whining. And I'm thinking, how was it, writing her, like writing her voice, like how, I'm just wondering, how did you pull it off? I mean, I think that's one of the things that I enjoy about writing, which for anyone who's in the middle of a draft for clarity is never in my first draft. Things always are, are much better as I revise and I sort of think through. I was astounded five or six years ago, I was talking to a group of authors and it's the first time that I understood that for me, writing has always been about seeing a movie in my mind and then trying to sort of transcribe that movie so the rest of you can see it too. So it was only recently that I learned another writer saying, oh, I don't see it at all like a movie. And I was like, oh, how do you do this? (laughs) Um, Because for me, when you ask, how do I do it? It's it's I'm there in that airport, right? So when I'm in revisions, I tell myself, look around, what are you seeing? What would the camera notice? You know, what are the things that I can pull out? And not like a movie, unless you have, you know, smell or vision or whatever, but but I'm also looking at those other senses. Like, you know, what are things that would make people instantly feel that they were in that space? Yeah. Um, I was teaching a class the other day and someone was talking about back to school and she started describing the cleanser in the bathrooms, the smell of the bathroom cleanser mixed with sharpened pencils. And it was instantly because I was instantly transported to being back in school. Like that's, I just knew that instantly. Yeah. Um, and so I just think when you're looking to make a scene feel alive and to feel active is, is pulling in all of those senses and saying, okay, what, what would I see? What's moving around me? What's happening? Because that just puts the reader in that same place. When you talk about like, I feel like I'm the character. It's because as the writer, we have to give them enough. And I think too often what I see for people who are kind of just starting is this tendency to stay very distant. Okay. So they're, they're, you know, they're just observing it and they're, they're not letting themselves like, well, okay, now be in that moment yeah. as that person. And what does that person see and notice? Okay. Okay. Because even later, I was thinking about this walking the dog, dogs this morning. When the plane takes off, and when I was reading that last night, I kind of stopped myself and I thought, I can hear the plane taking off. Like in my head, I could hear the plane taking off. And then I was looking at the how you had written it, and I thought, did she did Eileen once say, I heard the plane taking off? And it wasn't obvious like that like just how you describe the plane and how you did it I could hear the plane you know without having read 
I heard the play. You know, I really need to up my copy. Am I making sense? <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense to me. Um, I mean, I do think there's this interesting element. It usually goes around on social media every so often where it is this uh, document and it says like, if you can read this, you are one of the top. And it's actually, the words don't make any sense. I don't know if people have ever seen it. So the first letter and the last letter yeah. are correct. Uh, and the stuff in between is usually just gobbledygook, right? And you you can, because your brain is looking for patterns. So your brain is almost skimming ahead. And if it sees a word that starts with an R, ends with a D, has two letters in between it, it's automatically wondering, like, could that be read or wrote? Like, it starts jumping ahead and it's making judgments because of context. Okay. And I think that's interesting because as writers, we can do the same thing. Like, we don't have to put every single detail in there because our brains are faster than that. Yeah. So you don't have to have, you know, Eileen sat down uh, in the too small airline chair. She buckled her seatbelt. The engine started. They made a roar. <laughs> like you don't like the reader will be there. So give them enough of the pieces and they'll plunk themselves in that same spot and they'll fill in the blanks. That's Great advice. Okay. Because I find with some of my writing, and thank God for rewrites, it's almost <laughs> like I took the keys out of my pocket. I put it in the lock. I turned, right? And it's just like, and then after three rewrites, I'm thinking, just get her through the damn door. <laughs> you know, right? Well, we think, we, we think, well, the reader won't know, right? Yeah. They won't know. So it's like, we have a scene where we're like, you know, Eileen the front, locked the front door and stormed out to her car. Yeah. And then all you really need is a space. And then as she pulled into the office building, you, you don't need to describe the drive. You don't need to describe putting the keys in the car. Like the reader won't be like, holy cow, did she teleport? Like they'll know <laughs> what happened. They'll yeah. fill that in and they'll, they'll see it right? Without you having to describe it. And in fact, when we sometimes describe all of those little, what I think of as transitional moments, we slow the pacing down and the reader gets bored because they, they know it without knowing it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, So we can often cut those things. And so we're always looking to be, if anything, I always tell people cut more and then add it back in. Because a re- you know a beta reader will come back and be like, wait a minute, how did she get to work? And they'll be like, oh, okay, I need to have some line about she grabbed her car keys and headed out the door. Yeah, I need something so they know why she's suddenly at work or where people are in space. Like, are they sitting or standing or you know moving to the kitchen or whatever they're doing? But needing to have each little step is just going to slow the story down. Okay. Okay. Good. So I'd like to. Read a little bit of Kim's internal dialogue here. So she's, so our listeners know, when I say she, so this is in Kim's voice, Kim is referring to her mom, this discussion she had with her mom. Okay, so she might have said she wanted me to go on the trip because it was a chance to travel, but she also wanted me to be the kind of person who held her head high to handle the situation the way she would have done. And we have a little more dialogue. This is the the kicker here. However, if I was going to go full fantasy, I might as well add in that the queen would invite me to the palace and Will and Kate would ask me to babysit 
and Harry and Megan would offer to hook me up with some minor count or duke. The truth was, the next few weeks were going to suck. And I just, to me, I thought, mic drop like that. So I love that piece. Would you say that inner dialogue has the same weight or even more weight than regular dialogue? I think so. I, I come from a psychology background. So that was my my day job before I, I was doing writing. And so I'm probably somewhat biased in that I think what's happening inside of our head is often much more important than what we're expressing. Um, because we were, you can't help but be honest in a lot of ways inside your head. So there's all the things that we say that we, you know, we filter out. And we know like, okay, that's not appropriate to say. I can't yeah. say that. I can't do that. Um, and we're maybe honest with how we feel. And, and I think in that moment, you know, when Kim is talking about her mom, she's talking about that feeling that I think a lot of us have had where it's like someone in our life wants us to be something and we feel like we're falling short. Okay. Um, so she has this great go-getter mom and she knows that her mom wants her to, you know, be a bad girl boss kind of thing. And And she just, she doesn't feel that to her the idea of oh i'm i'm going to be emotionally strong and just handle this is as ridiculous as you know harry and megan being like hey you know you want to do you want a date here's an independently wealthy minor royal family member you know <laughs> it all feels ridiculous to her so i think there's something lovely about sort of sometimes contrasting what people will say out loud with what their internal thoughts are and I think the reader often has a lot of empathy because we all have those thoughts, right? We've all been in a meeting with our boss where we're like, I can't believe you're such an unbelievable idiot. Yeah. Um, you know, and on the outside, you're like, that sounds like a great plan, Stan. I can't wait to get going on that project, you know, <laughs> while inside you're thinking, I, like, do you not have anything to do that you just assign me these projects? Yeah. Like, we understand that feeling because we all do that. We yeah. all have our inside voice, as my mom used to call it, and our outside voice. Yeah. Uh, and you have to balance those two. And I think as we're trying to let readers get to know our characters, letting them see some of those inside vulnerabilities uh, is really important, especially if you have a character that on the outside maybe comes across as really strong or um, brash. Uh, and so I'm thinking here of uh, Gone Girl, which I love the book, Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn. Um, and you meet Amy Dunn. And Amy is a real piece of work. <laughs> I don't think I'm spoiling anything with that. Yeah. <laughs> She's a real piece of work. But when you hear her, her inside thoughts and she talks about, you know, how her parents wrote this children's book called The Amazing Amy where amazing Amy never gave up the violin like the real Amy did. And amazing Amy did a great job at camp, unlike her. And you can feel that pain, that pain of feeling always falling short. Yeah, and not, even that, not, you know, and then having your parents write about it and yeah. publish it and have it be this huge international bestseller where it's like, no, this is the child my parents really wanted. Yeah. What they got was me. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Now, for clarity, in case anyone thinks that I'm excusing then her murderous rampage that then happens, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying I understand it. And I had empathy for her as a character because of that. And I think you stick with the story too, right? Yeah. Because I've read Gone Girl and you stick with the story because you may not agree with her actions, but you know what's what her motivations, what her backstory is. Yeah. You understand those motivations. And I think she's also, I think Gillian Flynn does a lovely job there of making it our evil wish fulfillment. Like for any woman who's ever been cheated on, I'm hoping most of us wouldn't pretend to go missing and murdered so that our ex would be blamed for our murder and possibly go to prison. (laughs) I hope we wouldn't carry things that far. But boy, there is a certain tiny corner of our mind that thinks, well, that would be just what he deserves, right? But <laughs> a little bit of prison time wouldn't hurt him. Um, so I, I think she just really captured that because it, it is inside that feeling. And, you know, Amy talks a lot about like, how dare he have this affair after she has, in her opinion, bent over backwards to be the perfect wife. Wow. And now he's cheating on her and she's just, she's going to teach him a valuable lesson. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think we understand it even if we don't uh, condone it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So what advice would you give writers regarding voice? Because you write in a teen's voice and I, it's not annoying, yet she doesn't come across as an adult. And I've been questioning my own writer's voice in the sense that I'm 50-ish-ish-ish, and I am writing a protagonist who's in her mid-30s. And I I have a daughter, we have daughters, or both our girls are in their mid-30s. And I know I don't talk like them. Okay. So like what, what advice would you give to writers regarding voice? Thinking about your story, you know, you owe me a murder. I think a lot of writers, we start by writing characters that are very close to ourselves because that is easier um, because we we instantly know what that's like. But I think one of the benefits that comes with age as someone who's also 50-ish <laughs> um, <laughs> is that we've been there, right? Like, and we can look back in it in a way that that you can't when you're in the middle of it. Yeah. Uh, so I think there there is a benefit that comes from um, you know, it's been a, a long time since I was a teenager, <laughs> but I do remember that sense of intensity. I mean, that's one of the reasons I love writing YA is that sense of intensity, because when your boyfriend has broken up with you at 16, 17, 18, it truly does feel like you will never love again. You can't imagine that you're going to heal from that. And so writing in that teen voice has let me let that out, right? So I try to think back if, you know, I'm writing a character in her 30s, I try and think about like, what was happening in my own 30s and what were my thought process? And then as I'm unfolding and writing the character, just catching myself every so often, like, is that something they would notice? Or is that something I would notice? So like when I think back on my 30s, I was much more concerned with making sure that I looked like an adult and that I fit in because I was often the youngest person in my work office in a certain position. 
So I was always like, I was always scanning the room to be like, did I have the right heels? Did I have the right bag? Did I have the right pen? Did I have... And now in my 50s, one of the beautiful things is I really just don't care what you think of me anymore. (laughs) Like I, you know, like I'm just, I'm here. This is who I am. This is as good as it's going to get. But, you know, kind of going back and then remembering in my 30s, like, okay, those were the, like you're striving in your 30s. Really, that's your entry to adulthood in so many ways. And you're trying to, you know, you still feel like, is anyone going to let me be the adult ever? And you don't seem like part of you is angry. And then part of you is also terrified. Like I shouldn't be allowed to do this. I remember signing contracts for work and being thinking like, shouldn't somebody else be checking these? Like, does everybody know? I don't know what I'm doing. No, I, I understand that feeling. Yeah. And it's, well, two things popped to mind when you were, we were talking about that. Is there are times when sometimes in like my brain, I still feel like I'm in my 30s, but my body will tell me, no, you're not. <laughs> right. And then the other thing is, I swear, these last five years, I have worn my sneakers, my runners, more than I have. I have I saved up for two pairs of flu fog shoes. And they're just sitting there nicely in my closet now. And I'm just like, could you wear those for a day? <laughs> like, it's just, <laughs> but my, hero, but my heroine does, right? She wears hers, you know? So, yeah. Now, let's shift a bit to speaking events. Um, like I said, you've spoken to writers associations, uh, the evening keynote speaker to 400 writers at the very revered. Surrey International Writing Conference. I heard you at the Whistler Writers Conference, um, I think it was 2019. And you've spoken at corporate retreats, libraries, schools. And it was interesting because on your website, it mentions how you can make an audience, your audience, they'll be laughing Yet they'll also be brushing aside tears. And I have I have experienced that with, with what you've shared with your audience. Um, so I but I have to ask, what was it like winning the Battle of the Books competition? As well, what was it like talking in front of a group of over 300, 300 people, grade one through grade three students? Because I think the second one would scare the heck out of me. So well, tell us about that. It's it's interesting because I'm actually a total introvert. Um, I'm a weird introvert who doesn't mind public speaking. I find it exhausting, yeah. um, but I don't, I don't mind doing it. Um, and it's interesting because I have done a lot of corporate events and large speaking events. And Adults are a lot easier because adults will be polite, even if they don't find you that interesting. Um, But young kids will not. (laughs) So if you want to know if you're entertaining, then I highly suggest speaking in front of a group of young kids because they will tell you. Um, I recently did a talk at the Vancouver Public Library. And before I went up, the librarian said to me, now you're the third, it was four, they do a book camp at Vancouver Public Library. So they bring in a speaker each day. And the woman said, I just need to warn you, there's a kid in the front row 
who, whenever you open up for questions, his first question is, when will you be done talking? Because there's pizza for lunch. So she's like, he's asked it every day. We've asked him not to, but he's seven, right? So, yeah. so she's like, just don't let it throw you. So my, my moment of glory was the seven-year-old didn't ask me when I would be done. <laughs> so that's when I knew I had arrived. Um, kids are a much more demanding audience, but they're also so completely engaged and enthralled. And as someone who grew up loving books, it, it breaks my heart that there are people who don't grow up loving books yeah. and, you know, haven't had that experience and reading can be challenging for some kids. And so if there's any way that I can sort of help them realize like, oh, it could be fun it could be this imaginary world that is great, then I am 100% committed to doing that because I just love it. Um, but yes, if you're if you're going to pr- start practicing with public speaking, I highly recommend starting with grownups <laughs> before you, you venture out into kids. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the battle of the books? What was that competition? So this was rather interesting. Uh, Several school districts do this, but they will select four or five books um, and they will ask all the kids in the grades to read the books. And then the kids can vote for which their favorite book would be. Uh, And one year, the Richmond School District here, uh, close to where I live, uh, was doing the Battle of the Books. And two of the books were by BC authors. So it was myself uh, and an author named Darian Gross, um, who is an Australian who now lives in Canada. Yeah. So they said to us, you know, would you be willing to come out? Because we've never had, when we've done this battle of the books, we've never had the authors living close enough to come visit. Yeah. So Darren and I went out and we went to each of the Richmond school districts. And Darren is hysterically funny. If you have a chance to read any of his books, I highly do recommend them. And he would get up and he would be like, who wants M&Ms? All you have to do is vote for Darren Gross. And he'd shake this thing and I'd be like, curse you, Darren. Um, So we had a a lot of fun, but it was interesting to see. And you have to sort of know, like you can win and you can lose because what makes one person like a book may be the very thing that makes someone else think it was a total dud. Um, but I did enjoy that I beat Darren Groff in that battle. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, didn't have to resolve. Yeah. He would tell you the election was stolen and it was fake news. I am proud to say that elections were fair and honest and yeah. he lost. Yeah, and no bribery was, was yeah. yeah no it bribery was, was required. I won. He lost. That's yeah. Scary. Oh, Now, Eileen, the mentor, you offer... It says limited freelance editing on full or partial manuscripts. And I love Tony O's review. You know, he starts with Eileen, a mistress of manuscripts, uh, helped beat my words into submission. And then he goes, actually, she's a great editor and works with authors with great care and humor and doesn't crush your childhood dreams like your old gym teacher might. And that that cracked me up. Okay, so what does your freelance editing, what does that entail? Um, Because I know self-published authors who have asked me they're looking for an editor or they're looking for someone to kind of really critique and go into that that manuscript 
So first I'll do a card. I do love that quote. It's from a fellow, I'll, I'll give it away. It's Tony Olivier, yeah. uh, who wrote a wonderful book that actually just won, I think it was Amazon's best new book, um, which is The Amsterdam Deception, which is a book I had the chance to work with him on that. That's where that comes from. So it's a wonderful spy thriller for people looking for a good book. Uh, I think editing is different because it really comes in different waves. So there are the type of editing that I have always done is what I would call structural or story edits. So I'm looking at the big picture. Does your story work? (laughs) You know, do you need more dialogue? Do you need more description? Uh, Are there plot holes? Do I understand why the characters are doing different things? So those are the pieces that I'm looking at. And then sort of the second round that usually comes after that is someone who's a good copy editor. Uh, And a copy editor is looking at things like, should that be a comma or a semicolon? Is that sentence as clear as it should be? There are editors who do both. I'm the first one to admit I can barely use a comma correctly. I have no business telling other people how to use a comma correctly. (laughs) So I tend to stay away from that type of thing and worry about more of the big picture structural. What I would say to every writer, but particularly people who are going indie published, is you want to put your best work out there. And there is absolutely no shame in needing to get another eye on that because any book that you're seeing on the shelf of your library uh, in your bookstore has had multiple people have their eyes on it. When you're in the middle of your own story, you can't see things. I remember I turned in pages once to my editor And we were having a phone call about it. And she said, well, I don't understand why the character is doing this particular thing. And I remember thinking like, well, that's stupid. I said, well, it's, I thought it was fairly obvious. It's because of what happened between her and her dad. And they had the situation. She goes, okay, you know, there's no scene with her and her dad. Right. And I realized that I had cut it out at some point because I didn't think it was needed, but in my mind, that scene was still in there. I knew it, right? Because I'm the story God. I know all the things, but it wasn't anywhere on the page. So for the reader, there was this like, why in the world would the character do that? And I just forgot. You just don't see things in your own work, especially I think a big project, like a novel that you've been in for so long. So you need to get another eye on it. I would say to people, if you're going traditional publishing, there will be an editor. Right. They will, the publisher will have an editor on it for certain. Uh, But I would still encourage you to either have an edit done yourself because the market's really tight these days getting in uh, or enlist several of your good writer friends to help you really polish it as much as possible. I don't think you have to pay for an editor, but I do think you need to make sure you're getting that outside view. Yeah. Now, if you're going indie published, you know, I would encourage you to make sure that you're having somebody go through it and get it as clean as possible because, it's, you know, I sound like my mom. You only have one chance to make a first impression. Uh, but but it's true, right? Like, you know, once people pick up a book of yours, what you want is for them to love it and be like, I need to read the next book this person wrote. Yeah. Um, and if it feels too loose or too sloppy, they won't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, oh gosh, it's, you had mentioned commas. I swear I drive pit nuts with she's my editor with M dashes. And and it's like, okay, especially when the dialogue gets broken, you know, someone interrupts. Now, is it another voice interrupting? Does the M dash go before like in the quotation marks or if it's a physical movement, 
the M dash goes outside the quotation marks. And I, I'm looking this up and I thought, okay, don't read anymore. Cause then they gave other examples. I thought it's just going to confuse you. Think of it as a dialogue or physical movement, right? So I hope I got it. <laughs> you know, we all have our own weird things. Like the other thing is we often have certain um, crutches that we rely on. So for me, and maybe because I write a lot of teens and teens are often frustrated, I will be like, oh, I'm going to have them roll their eyes so that you can see that they're frustrated. And then I'll have an editor point out like, this is the 17th time that this character has rolled their eyes. Like it's really getting annoying and a little bit over time. And that's like, I realize like, I don't even see it. Yeah. yeah. So I, now I have certain things that I search for. Um, so I look, I search for rolling eyes because I know I still do fall to it. Yeah. I search for words like just or seems like, because you often don't need to have them. Right. So you'll look to be like, I just started walking or I began to do this. And I'll be like, do you need to say I began to do that? Or is it clear that they weren't doing it before? So clearly <laughs> they're starting to do it now. Yeah. And I've built up more of those the longer I've I've been doing this work. Um, so I think you can all get better as we kind of learn our own sort of trip ups. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's useful to just get that outside eye sometimes because they will just see it. And it's I I know you've had the experience because you're in the writer's studio. You get your pages back and you're like, how did I not notice that I changed the character's name or that or that you know I changed this color of the sofa from blue to red or that I did this like, and you just don't see it yeah yeah see and she's caught me on that where you know one scene they're in their favorite coffee shop and the blue suit is matching the blue walls and then near the end of the book they're lime green walls and she's like um the wall color has changed <laughs> you know it's like oops right oops. yeah <laughs> now this book Build better settings. How to use setting to show character arc in your fiction. It's 149 pages. And I have broken my rule because I am finding it really, really good. I got a pencil. I lean, I never mark books. I never mark workbooks, but I've run out of post-its. And I put stars like with a pencil, so I could always erase it, right, of of points in here. Now, it's crazy because I've just finished rewrites for Spy Girls. And before I read this book, I was thinking, okay, the first two, the first three books are take, they take place in Victoria, Fantan Alley, where my heroine has her law office. Then I've written the first draft of book four, which is taking place in The Hague. And again, while I'm walking the dogs, I'm thinking, you know, this fourth book is going to be different because it's like, like A, you know, the setting is different. And I thought it almost, it's almost going to feel like a different series just because it's a different setting. And then I pick up this book and it's the emotion, like you, you talk about the emotion that's attached to these settings. Like, can you ex like expand on that? Because like I said, it's blowing my mind. Like it, it's, yeah. 
I am so excited about this book because for me, when I, I sat down and Crystal and I talked through it, I it was something that I had thought about, but I hadn't articulated it. Um, and there's nothing like having to write it down and explain it to someone else to make you sort of, you know, think it through yourself. But I am fascinated at not just the space. And I, I think too many writers fall into the thing of like, oh, this book is in The Hague. Let me describe what the streets look like. Let me describe what this looks like. Let me describe what the air smells like or how it feels. But those aren't really that interesting of details. Yeah. Um, it just gets blurry in the background, right? What's interesting is how that individual character experiences that space and how they feel in that space. And, and you can see that even just in your own life, I think, where you look back on different spaces and how you felt in that space and how what you noticed about that space. Um, so, you know, when you first move into a, a new condo because your relationship has ended, right? And so you're in that, all I noticed the first year that I lived in this new space is how it was not like my home. Yeah. Every detail that I would pick out would be like, oh, ceilings were higher in my old house. Oh, we had the gas stove in my old house. Oh, we had this. And then, you know, as that shifts, as I have changed and my feelings about my own space have changed, uh, where it now feels like this very comfortable spot to be in. So it's not the setting, it's how the character experiences the setting. And as the character changes, that changes. So one of the examples we use in the book is if you open a book with a character who may be having an addiction issue. So they might be in a bar that's loud and smoky and all those kinds of things, but they love it. Right? It's their happy space. Hey, Norm, how you doing? Yeah. Uh, but as they change, they start to notice that the bar is kind of a scuzzy place and your hand sticks to the countertop and, yeah. you know, someone else is thrown up in the bathroom again. And yeah. because the bar hasn't changed, the bar is exactly the same. They've changed. Right. That's what's Okay. Okay. Because I guess it's also hitting me because you refer to, because we've, we've been a year now in Shemanus and we built this house. So when you start, like you say, build better settings and you talk about, you clear the land, you put up the foundations. I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Cause I, I've got, and it, so it's, really connecting with me and um like I, I have to highlight a couple of points you've made on in this book so here we go you say once you understand the structural concepts you'll be ready to understand building materials of setting backstory the foundation emotional wounds the walls, objects and symbols, the decor, secondary characters, the housemates, perspective, the windows. That got me. Like that, I'm not just like, so that got me. And so, and then another point that hit home for me was the four levels of setting. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little, like the four levels. So when we were coming up with this, we were trying to figure out again, how to best describe it. So we decided to use this building metaphor. And once we kind of landed on that, then everything we could kind of make place uh, 
it fit into what we were describing. So first we were like, okay, we have to figure out setting happens on all these different levels. So what are they? Yeah. We broke it down into four. So the first level that we talk about is the world level. So for us, that would be, for me, that's living in Canada in Vancouver. So that's this level that your character probably has the least amount of control over. Unless you're running a world where they are the queen or the emperor or the god or whatever like that. But most of us, we don't have a lot of control over that. The second level is the community level. So those are public spaces that we're out engaging in. So those are our workplaces, the corner bar we like to go to, our favorite restaurant. It's those kinds of spaces. So now we're talking, we have a little bit more control over those. We get to choose where we like to hang out and spend our time. The next one is sort of our private spaces. So those are places like our home. Uh, And even within there, we sort of broke it up into like public private and private private. (laughs) So public private is like our living room. So I expect that people may come over. Um, And so as a result, there may be certain things that I don't put into my living room that I might have in my bedroom. Because in my bedroom, it's really a very private space. And then the fourth level uh, which we debated, but we're both psychologists, both Crystal and I, so we couldn't leave it out, is we decided that inside our own mind is also a level of setting. Yeah. Because how we think about the world changes that, right? So you know people in your life who their worldview is negative and like the world's a horrible place and, you know, and everything that they see and do is colored by that worldview. So we felt like we had to sort of talk about Whatever the setting is inside your own head yeah. is important. So we included that one too. Well, like I say, it's it's blowing my mind. And I am so glad. And like this isn't this isn't like a, a paid promotion or anything like this. I'm just I don't want to like fly through this book. Like I, I want to like keep it on me. As because I'll you know I'll get this manuscript back from Pip, and there are going to be more edits, and I want to work through those edits with this book beside me, you know. And another thing I like is, you know, you give examples. You know, you you have a, a a character in here and a story, and then you say in the book, your turn. And you're encouraging the authors to take what they've learned and look at their own work. And I was just wondering, I I understand why you, I think I understand why you did it, but what made you decide that you wanted to do that? So the beautiful thing about writing a book um, that's a craft book or is about writing is I'm a writer, right? So I have my own shelf of craft books. I don't know a single writer out there who doesn't have at least half a dozen to a couple dozen to, you know, two or three shelves for, you know, here's a book on dialogue and here's a book on this. And, you know, we all have those books. And I look at the ones that I return to again and again are those that take a concept and then one can explain it to me in a way that is practical, which is partly why we included uh, in that book, we gave an example of who we called Bailey. Yeah. We set up a story because the concept that we were talking about, this idea that setting was related to character, I haven't seen that before. And so we felt like we needed very practical examples of where we would say, like, this is how objects and symbols can be used 
in the story. And so we wanted to set up practical examples where you could see it. Yeah. And then it's fine to have an idea, but it's another thing to then try and figure out how you're going to do it. And so we wanted to come up with a lot of prompts. And what I find with prompts is there'll be some where you're like, yes, that's perfect. And that makes perfect sense. And another one, which will be like, that sounds dumb and boring. And I don't want to do that. So we wanted to come up with as many different kinds of ways for people to jumpstart because people are also in different stages. So some people are just starting to write and they're like, I'm just interested in setting. And I heard about this on Joanna's podcast. It sounded interesting. And so it's just sort of an in general for them. Other people are in the middle of a first draft and hopefully it gives them a few things of like, oh, that's an interesting idea. I could play with that. Um, Or other people are where you are, which is in revisions, which I used to hate revisions and now I kind of love them. But now it's become something where it's like, oh, wait a minute. I mentioned her favorite uh, teddy bear three times in this book. I wonder if I could make a symbol into that. And I wonder if I can, you know get more bang for my buck out of that star and teddy bear, because I think our subconscious does a lot more than we think it does. Yeah. Um, And so we can kind of go back and maybe highlight some things. So we wanted to create a book that no matter where you were in the writing process, that you would find a few things that you could pick out and learn from. And that hopefully uh, fingers crossed uh, would be on your bookshelf with a bunch of post-it notes or pencil marks. We're fine with highlighting. We love (laughs) book. Um, where you would be like, oh, you know, I'm really struggling with that. Wait a minute. I'm going to pull that out and see if I can get something. Yeah. So that was our goal. When you read a book like this, build better settings. And it just makes you, it's almost, I don't want to say a light bulb goes on, but it it just makes you relook at what you've just written, you know? And um, with these last rewrites I removed I think it was around 66 pages and put new stuff in you know and it's it's been a wild ride and uh, I'm looking forward to getting the edits back and the I don't know 1,000 comments (laughs) down the side (laughs) and and approaching it with this book in my hand yeah so Eileen Thank you so much. I think the the coffee has finally kicked in. Is there any <laughs> is there anything you'd like to add? Well, one, I I want to say thank you so much for having me, and I would also yeah. just put a call out to writers who might be listening, and just to remind themselves that sometimes writing is the most fun, right? It just feels like a wildfire; it's out of control, and you're just hanging on and writing with it. And other days, it feels like it's just dead as a doornail and you can't get a spark going. Yeah. The best and the worst thing about writing is that you can always get better. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I love that. And I also hate that because it also means, you know, I recently had a reason to pull out one of my first books that was published. So not one of my first books, but one of my first published books. And I was reading and I had that cringy moment where I was like, oh, if I could write this again, I would cut this and I would make this tighter and I would have a better example here and I would do this and do that. Um, But you can't go back. But it is also that thing of like, I'm a better writer than I used to be. And I hope that I'm a better writer, you know, six months from now, a year from now, 10 years from now. I hope I keep enjoying that. So I would just want to put a call out to writers is to remember to have fun. It's when we're having fun with writing 
when we let ourselves play with some new ideas, which sounds like the setting book gave you a few, um, lets you play with those things that we get better. um, And it should be fun. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, this has been fantastic. Thank you. Okay, Eileen. Well, I'm going to make sure I get... um, I always have it. Here's my age coming in. I'll make sure I get all your socials <laughs> in the podcast notes. Okay. And the Creative Academy, because we didn't get a chance to talk about that, but I'll I'll get all those links in the show notes. Oh, that would be great. And yeah, I would encourage any writers out there, the Creative Academy is a great place to join. Um, and I have regular craft workshops there. So it's a chance to catch up with things. Well, for you, I'll see you in class. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and the other thing I like about Creative Academy is it's kind of set up like Facebook, but it's yeah. all writers and it's everything to do with writing. You know, like if you want to do a writing sprint, you click the little tab here, you know, or if you want to see upcoming events, you click here and it's all geared for writing. You know, you're not getting the jokes about, okay, look at all these words that say large and which one is actually written correct, you know? (laughs) We wanted to create a place that we wanted to hang out. So it was purely selfish. Uh, We wanted to create a place that it's very positive. Uh, If things are negative, we actually are disinvited from coming. It's meant to be a positive place, which doesn't mean you can't get critiques. We have critiques, but it needs to be on that positive side. Uh, and it's embracing people. We have people who are members who are New York Times bestsellers. Uh, we have people who this is their first manuscript that they're working on. And we're all there as writers. I don't believe that anyone is a better writer than someone else. They may be more polished, more professional. They may be further along in their own writing journey. Uh, but everybody has just as much of a right to be there and has just as much of a story that they're trying to share. So I love that place. And now I'm just happy because I've populated it with now we're, I think we just hit 3000 people. Um, so it's, you know, full of people that I love. So it's like the best thing ever. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. I think well, you have a good day. You too. Thank you so much. <laughs>